James. Hey, Duncan. How are you, dude? I'm well, thanks. How are you going, mate? Happy New Year. Uh, COVID is, I had COVID, but it was fine <laughs> for me. It wasn't too bad. So I'm um, pretty good, actually. <laughs> um, all right. So welcome to Cloud Structures, a podcast where James and I talk about a topic. Um, today's one is called attachment styles. Mm-hmm. They're normally referred to as childhood attachment styles. But there's actually a bunch more research about these things being in other places, such as school, such as workplaces and all over the place. Um, and so all models are wrong. Some are useful. Uh, it's not trying to say that this is perfectly right, but there's a lot of value in this, I think, mm. and a good model to try to understand. And it helps you give a lens in different places. So I'm going to talk through the four different ones. Secure, anxious, dismissive, and avoidant, fearful. Um, and so secure is kind of the one I suppose you want to be <laughs> anxious is you're worried you're, you're sort of in it you're there and but you're worried I suppose that someone's not going to be there for you or whatever avoidant is that you're actually not trying to be part of it you're kind of being too cool or you're sort of trying to not get hurt by avoiding mm. and then fearful disorganized is you're kind of um, I don't know fearful and disorganized James you want to give your two cents on what they are <laughs> <laughs> well um, so I think first of all this all stems from attachment theory, which was, it's actually relatively new. I, I think it went back to like early 1900s where um, it started was started by a psychiatrist. Anyway, what they noticed were, and why we always associate attachment theory with children was they noticed that when children were deprived of affection, they would have very, very different behaviors. Um, and so my take on the four that they outline in the study and multiple since is, so they're secure, which is basically when a infant is considered to be receiving sensitive and loving care. There's insecure avoidant, where typically they receive insensitive and rejecting care. There's insecure resistant, which is insensitive and inconsistent. And then there's insecure disorganized and it's just listed as atypical which means there's no way that they can structure the way in which they um, manage their own emotional state mm. all right so i think again a lot of this comes from early childhood desires but i think it actually applies in many many places so here's my question for you james what kind of attachment do you think you and i have <laughs> so let me clarify do you are you talking about uh, individually or in terms of this relationship? Just us between you and me. Yeah. So I would say this is a pretty secure attachment. Definitely. Right. And so to me, this is interesting. And I think that I th- you probably all remember, like, I don't know, at school being cool was important or whatever. <laughs> and now I don't think being cool is important at all. And in case it's not clear, I wasn't very cool at school. <laughs> and so sometimes, um, you, I don't know, are hanging out with the cool kids or whatever. And you might be anxious. Do you know what I mean? You're trying to fit in and you're trying to kind of be liked or whatever by the cool kid or the cool kids. Um, and I think this is really interesting. Like, hopefully, most will have a best friend. Um, and a best friend is many things. It's like downside life insurance. If something bad happens, they'll be there to help you. But it's also adding upside, you know. But some people, I suppose, don't necessarily have a secure best friend. So security as an example is you're not worried about whether that person likes you too or wants to hang out. And as soon as something better off comes along, they're going to run away or something, right? Mm. And so to me, I'm sure maybe many people don't have that. And so it's really, really interesting. I think that James and I have a secure attachment style, but does that mean that everyone that relationship in my life is that way? No. Some of them are definitely anxious, you know, or, or, or other places, you know. And other ones like... Some people, uh, a mutual friend of ours who shall remain nameless, <laughs> is extraordinarily disorganized. Do you know what I mean? And so to me, it's like I don't want to try to make the effort to make him feel secure because it's just it's not worth it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, and he certainly isn't that way with me. And I'm not trying to be, it's not some reflective, well, I was trying to be friends and you weren't friends with me. So I'm just like, I haven't got only 24 hours in a day and a certain amount of energy. And for better or worse, I'm not sure that I'm going to devote much energy to you because of your extraordinarily disorganized way of being. And that's your choice. You can choose to be that way. But that isn't creating the, the, the foundation or the space for me to want to, to have a secure relationship with you. Okay, so you've, 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 you've laid out three threads, all of which I kind of want to t- 
well, hug at. So pick one. Uh, well, <laughs> let me just lay them out because number one, there is one and two are related. They're the idea of you having a particular attachment style based on um, what the theory suggests would be your upbringing from your primary caregiver. So who are you as a default? Number two being, um, how are you in certain relationships, which I had not thought of, and I'm keen to explore that further. So you, you're talking about yours and mine relationship as being secure, yet you might have different types of attachment styles with other people. And then there's the third one, which I thought was also interesting, um, with this mutual uh, friend of ours who shall remain nameless. Uh, you, you, you said it was up to them in how they um, dictate their style of attachment. And I thought that was super interesting because based on my very rudimentary level of understanding on the attachment styles, uh, the, a significant amount of this is established within the first six months, one year and seven years of an individual's life. And so it may well be up to someone to take control of their style of attachment, but I would argue, I would posit that it would be very hard to reprogram yourself. I don't agree. <laughs> right. So to, to me, a socialized mind, which is this whole Keegan's level of developmental theory, right? The socialized mind, self-authoring, self-transforming. And according to Keegan, two-thirds of people are self-socialized mind, about 33% are self-authoring, 1% self-transforming. So socialized minds are kind of a product of their circumstance, right? Yeah. And a self-transforming is a product of themselves. So to me, you can definitely dig your way out of things. No one's saying it's necessarily easy, but it's almost always possible. Mm. And so to me, where a lot of this comes from is childhood. So like, you know, I don't know, small, like, I don't know, toddler and younger. And I'm going to argue that almost no person at that point is self-authoring. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you're, you're all just like around. And so if your parents, I suppose, are not you know, giving you a secure attachment, then this is going to echo into other places, right? But to me, and this is, you speak to teachers about this, and they'll say, okay, well, they'll have the same kid in different classes. Some kid in like, whatever, PE class is like the sports star, but then they're not academic, you know, then they go into science class and they're not secure. They are anxious and they're avoiding and all this other stuff, right? And so I don't think you are one thing. I think that part of it is you. And so you might have like, I don't know, a legacy from when you were a child and you maybe were. So 65% of people, according to the studies, secure, right? Um, and therefore it's probably easier to be secure in other places, right? But it doesn't guarantee that you're secure in all relationships in your life and in all circumstances. Mm. And sometimes the relationship isn't even with a person. It's with a thing, like science. And you're like, so the, the equivalent is like, well, me and science don't get on, <laughs> right? Science class. And I am not in a good relationship with it. Do you know what I mean? I'm only here because I'm forced to, but I, you know, it's, it's an abusive relationship. <laughs> Do you know what Disorganized me? relationship, um, fearful avoidance. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Um, and so to me, um, you know, we should talk about this, like in Japan, they don't normally say Duncan is secure, or Duncan is you know, anxious or whatever. No, they say Duncan is secure in this circumstance, but Duncan is avoidant in that circumstance and Duncan is anxious in this circumstance. So the idea that you are one thing is a very Western thing. The idea that you are many things in many places is a very Eastern thing. That's, that's more how their language is set up. Mm. And so to me, I think what you were saying is what I thought about these things whatever, two, three years ago. There is one way and you are that and that is how you are in all circumstances. And I'm like, no, well, there's one way that your parents gave to you that was probably affecting how you were in other places as a young child, but that who I am today, I like to believe is majority self-built, you know, and that I can definitely change almost anything about me. So I want to preface this with saying that I agree with you in principle that when you arrive at the, the top of Keegan's theory of, of development and that you are a self-authoring um, mind, um, I don't think there's too much of your, you know, your own identity that you can't write or edit, so to speak. But I do think um, at least, so, you know, that was a really good exploration of your kind of approach and understanding of, you know, attachment styles or theory, sorry. I want to share with you one part of my own that I learned as part of my early journey into parenting. Because when I, mm. when I first went into this, I got really hooked on the neurobiological side, understanding the development of the infant's brain. Um, I don't know why 
the um, the physiological component interested interested me more than the psychological, but it just did. And so this is what I learned as as part of that process. So, um, so developmental neuroscientist Dr. Alan Shaw talks about how attachment theory is actually a theory of regulation. Uh, and so what he talks about is that there are areas of the brain that process emotional and social information. Um, and these are established at birth, right? You, you think about things you've heard of before, amygdala, hippocampus, insula, um, the orbitofrontal cortex are all there. And these are what's important for processing emotional states. But the connections between them are not. And these are what develop primarily over the first year, but then even then into like the first seven, they say. And what they what they what they have found in their studies, and I'm not gonna put myself on the record to say this is conclusive or whatever, but these have been very longitudinal studies and that they seem fairly confident in what their findings entail, is that how the circus organize themselves, which is how an individual creates the ability to process, communicate, and socialize and regulate their own emotions is largely determined by their relationship and interaction with their primary caregiver. So what they what they find is kind of like you have a machine learning algorithm and you're giving it a whole bunch of um, environmental input and it is reading, writing its own um, uh, uh, source code. And so what it's saying is that what the primary caregiver is doing is allowing the child to feel and identify in their own body different emotional states. So when you have a loving, caring caregiver, the child can make the initial establish or establish the initial connection that it is safe for me to regulate these emotions um, with this person and that's how I can do it with myself. Whereas when they're more avoidant or when they're more disorganized, that is now the like the fundamental building blocks of their reality. So it's actually very different to just thinking about things at the conscious level in terms of, well, I have self-awareness. I can therefore think about the way in which I want to interact with the world. This is goes below that, which is, this is my fundamental understanding of the world and how I actually create my relationship with my own emotions is largely determined by that. Okay, um, so, so what I'd say is, there are lots of studies, but you know, um, again, according to Kiki, two-thirds people socialize mind. So on average, what you're getting is what a socialized mind is, right? When you look at the studies, they're just averages. Um, and they're not ever almost of, you know, what a self-authoring person is. Um, so of course, the, you're, you know, the neurons that fire together, wire together. Um, I think that there's very, very heavy evidence that you can grow neurons and new synapses your entire life now. Mm. They used to think that it wasn't the case, but you can. Will there be wiring that occurs when you're young? Of course. Right? Your brain is the most plastic at the early age, um, but it never becomes a totally you know, uh, ossified. And for instance, will there be conscious and subconscious components to your mind? I think almost always. But one of the things that I think is a hallmark of moving from socialized mind to self-authoring, where it's training, is a decreasing component of subconsciousness in your mind. You're never going to get rid of 100% of it, but more and more, until you make the subconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you'll call it fate, Carl Jung, right? You can slowly move components. And so what that means is that all else equal, a child that has, I don't know, uh, uh, insecure, uh, you know, anxious attachment from their parents, will that have second order effects into other things when they're going to school? For sure, right? Does that determine the rest of their life? I think the evidence says that you can change it. Not say it's easy, but you can. And if you're aware of these things, and so one of the first things is like, oh my God, becoming aware of this. <laughs> uh, and so you, you speak, to, I don't know, so people that are aware of these things and are the teachers or whatever, child psychologists, et cetera. And they're like, they just start talking about this. And then they go through it, they're like, ah, okay. So part of this anxiousness comes from here. Okay, well, I can do cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, very, very, you know, widely researchers being able to change wiring, like base level wiring is able to be redone. And so to me, I suppose, what I'd say is that you can be any of these four styles, you know, this is not the only things, but they've just made four different ones in almost any area of your life with yourself. When I used to spend time with myself as a 20 year old, I'd get anxious, I'd get lonely, I'd get bored, I'd get FOMO. Now, time by myself is beautiful, it's secure, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but, and I would have said that, like, I don't know, I had a secure relationship with my parents, you know? But I didn't have a secure relationship everywhere. 
And I think that slowly over time, I've been able to build for the core areas, not all areas, but like the core areas, the core people in my life, the core things like work, being by myself. I think I have a secure relationship in all areas of my life. And I didn't, you know, when I was 18, maybe in 50% of the areas of my life I did when I was 18. So when, when we're talking about different types of uh, attachment relationships, so like I think the one with the self is a really good place to start because I can see this idea of, well, if you are secure, insecure, avoidant, insecure, resistant, or disorganized, that does start with the relationship one has with themselves. And so I would also posit that very early, early on in life, I don't, I don't know if I could vouch for exactly what type of caregiving I received because I can't remember it consciously. <laughs> but I do. It's, it's not, I don't remember anything. If you've blacked it all out, James, it probably wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think I had a, a good enough foundation to be able to regulate my emotions. But what I do know is when I was, uh, you know, back in the, the, the school years that Duncan would put forward as, you know, when you have a much more socialized mind, are you in, the, uh, you know, particular hierarchies like the cool group? That was very insecure for me. And it was insecure in a way that I was constantly aware of whether they were insufficiencies or my standing in terms of being accepted by the wider group it was something that would i think play on my own self-confidence and my own um, sense of secure attachment for a very long time and it was only when i went you know away for a year plus after i left school did i i think for the first time have enough time on my own to realize like hey i actually like being alone with myself like i'm pretty fun company to be with and i'm pretty awesome <laughs> I'm, I'm okay but it was that realization where i came to the point that it didn't matter how like you know to a point it didn't matter how i was received by the wider um community as long as i was happy being uh on my own then i felt a lot more secure in all of my relationships going forward mm. Yeah, so I think I don't know, you have teenage angst or whatever. And so all those equal, the, the, the graphs that Keegan's, Keegan's got is that you slowly over time, you know, can reach beyond socialized mind to sort of self war through. And so I'm just going to say that like, I don't know, 0.1% of people when they're 20 or 18 are, right? When they're 15. And then maybe 1% when they're 25. And maybe 10% when they're 35. And then maybe 20% when they're 45 and then maybe 30% when they're 55, and that's kind of, you know, one third, you know? And so, so you sort of get there. And one component of this self-authoring is that you're writing your own stories. You're building yourself. Of course, you had a starting point. Some of that's your biology, some of that's your nurture, you know? How, and we said part of the nurture is like, did you have that feeling of security? And so were you wiring up? So are you more likely to be anxious and worried about other areas if you were anxious and worried at home because you weren't getting food or you weren't getting held or whatever? Probably, right? You know, but does that, you know, rule the rest of your life? It doesn't have to. Um, and so again, to me, it's, it's interesting, like, where am I not secure? Mm. And you, you feel it, right? Because when you're not secure, you, you worry about things. And I suppose there've been times like, I don't know, early on in my career, um, you know, post, post-university, that I was really not sure if I was doing a good job, you know, mm. and I really wanted to. And so I wasn't secure in my relationship with my job, right? Mm. And then did I have worry and anxious about that? You go down right at it, right? <laughs> you know? Um, and I suppose now I'm much more secure in my, my um, uh, you know, value add, et cetera. And I think this is one of the interesting things. Like I could argue that obviously parents matter a lot, but I reckon that James and I spent more time with each other from start of school than we did proactively with our parents. Whilst they might have been around, they might have been more watching or minding or just in the house. They weren't interacting, if that makes mm. sense. And I think that James and I had a very secure relationship. Like, I thought we were very good to each other, positive some. We, we, I always look forward to seeing you you're playing other stuff. And so I suppose perhaps one of the things here is like, if the core areas of your life, and when you're born, the core is probably your parents. But then in junior school, it's probably your friend, mm. you know, mm. more than your parents. Mm. And if you don't have a good best friend, 
So one of the things that one prep teacher told me is the first thing I do in class is try to get each kid a best friend. And if they've got, or at least not a best friend, but a good friend, you know, that sort of the friend in class they talk to. And then they're calm and they can talk because they're not coming to class worried about having no friends. And if they've got no friends and they're not going to be wanting to pay attention and learn and they can't ask people. And I thought, that's genius, right? <laughs> so he's attempting to have people feel secure, at least in the social layer. And I'm sort of saying the same. I feel that whilst you know, I don't think I was cool, um, I wasn't, that that didn't mean that I felt insecure that I didn't have any friends. You know, it's weird. And so that is a core part of, I suppose, my ability to operate properly in primary school was a, a quality best friend, not someone who was abusive or exclusionary. Because, you know, there are sometimes people that like are mean to their friends, mm. you know, or whatever. That, that, you know, they do, yeah, it's, it's just really important. Mm. I, I remember you mentioning... Um something of the effect a while ago that they found that the one of the highest factors or determinants of a um, successful outcome from school was whether or not someone had a best friend um, and what the successful means like uh, to TBD but it was this realization that if you had a core a key relationship with someone else who I think you know um, like amplify this secure attachment then that gives you a lot more i think self-assurance and stability so we we both talked about um our relationship with you know friends or whatnot at school um based on our own self-esteem but i think Mm. what um you know friendship and you know in this case a best friend brings in is the second dimension which is trust and so, you know, Duncan's got a really cool little two by two matrix in the notes that we're, um, we go through here uh, that we talk about. And it has self-esteem and trust as the two dimensions. So if you mm-hmm. think about like trust being just as important when it comes to understanding the nature of relationships, I find that super mm-hmm. useful because I can have high self-esteem, but if I don't trust anyone, then I'm happier being alone. And, mm. and that attachment style is considered insecure because attachment, you know, by definition is about how you create long lasting relationships. But it's only when I have high self-esteem and high trust is there this semblance of what I would, you know, consider to be representative of our relationship through school, which is, you know, we were very comfortable knowing that each other had their best interests at heart. Like I, I knew and I trusted, I didn't know, I trusted that Duncan, no matter what his mm. actions were, were in my best interest. So if he didn't mm. talk to me for a whole week, I didn't have- It wasn't avoiding you or, yeah, piss, or pissy or something, I, you know, just, just was like busy or something. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have the low level of trust to suggest that I needed to engage with Duncan directly and frequently in order to maintain that relationship. So I think self-esteem and trust are a really, really cool way of making it a simple, um, you know, determination of what kind of relationship you have. And that's really important. And so to me, this framework, I think, works in many, many places. And you, really, you see some like, I don't know, let's just say it's the start of like a romantic relationship. You're just kind of like feeling each other out or whatever, right? Um, actually, probably physically and metaphorically. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're like, do they like me? Do they not like me? And you get in your head about stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you try to play it cool or whatever. And then you hopefully get to a point where you are both secure, both sides. Do you know what I mean? But there can often be in relationships a power imbalance where one's secure and the other one isn't secure for whatever reason. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that probably isn't a great circumstance. Uh, I'm not saying that it will end things, but I think you can look at a lot of relationships where, and sometimes it's like money. Like, I don't know, there's the main breadwinner and the not main breadwinner. And that person that's not the main breadwinner no longer wants to be around, but doesn't want to leave because then they haven't got enough money to pay. So they stick around, do you know what I mean? Mm. But they're insecure or whatever else it is. Um, and so it's really interesting. I think this whole one, so there's like, you know, self-esteem high, trust high is, is, is important, I think, in all the core areas. Um, you know, if you have a romantic relationship. So to me, like all of my core friendships and family is in the secure bucket. No question. 
Like you could weather whatever storm. Do you know what I mean? But I don't know, like my brother and me, when we were teenagers or whatever, I suppose there's un deep underlying, you know, unconditional love, but man, there was also some friction, you know, just like just getting each other riled up all the time, you know, <laughs> that doesn't really happen anymore, you know, thank thankfully. Um, and so I thought maybe it's worthwhile going through like in these places, you know, James, you started a new job recently or not that recently, you know, six months or whatever, a year ago. Have... but you don't start off probably in a secure place, right? And are you in a secure place? And then even if you're at a job, sometimes you drop out of that. Yeah. Well, I think everyone, when they start a new job, Sure, there's that level of excitement um, of, you know, potential, um, you know, not knowing how things are going to play themselves out. But, you know, the brain can seldom tell the difference between excitement and anxiety. It's up to you to decide which one you want, which, which path you want to take. So, <laughs> I, Same thing, just whatever you, you choose. Yeah, so maybe that's about exactly your, your level of self-esteem. Uh, self but I do... Mm -hmm. I do empathize with the the idea that you know by you know by definition you have a probationary period where within the first six months <laughs> you or the organization can just walk away from the uh, employment relationship very easily you know mm. for five months in like in theory i don't know if too many people do this but five months in and three weeks that they can just say you know what this isn't working and that's it you're out like there's no notice period or anything mm. and i think that would that would be a very, very considerable impact to trust because if somebody, if you're in a relationship and you know the other person could just walk away at the drop of a hat, then mm. that does affect your level of trustability, if that's a real word. Mm. And mm. once you get past that, uh, and so it, it flips once you get past that probationary period, it's almost like a an acknowledgement that's like, hey, we've actually been with you long enough or you've worked with us long enough that we acknowledge that you're a valuable enough member of the team that we want to keep you on long term. Like, there's a really interesting, um, you know, calculation someone did, which was it. It typically takes something like eighteen months to pay back an employee with all of the cost and expense of, uh, and time they put in hiring you. It's it's something like hmm. that. It's, well, two, two years you break it. Yeah, this this words. Yeah, it, it's um like I think it's less than two years because two point two years is the average tenure of an employee. But it's a long time. It's over a year. Yeah. So they want like this is something else that was very groundbreaking for people that I talked to when they first joined an organization. It is in the organization's best interest that you succeed. <laughs> so they do want you to succeed. And I don't think why is that groundbreaking? Because, <laughs> no, we, we we want this to all go, I, you know, yeah. tits up. So <laughs> quick segue. So when I was, um, you know, a coach for a lot of people in previous organizations I worked with, one of the main things they say to me is, "I don't feel appreciated. I don't feel like this organization wants me or cares about me." And the first thing I say is, "Well, um, at the end of the day, this is a transactional relationship in a way." But underneath that, this organization is employing you because it wants you to succeed, because it succeeds when you succeed. And I, and, and I, th I think people, it's easy to forget that. So going back to this point around employment, it becomes a lot more secure when you make the realization that they're they want to keep you going, if that makes sense. Hmm. Well, let's this lens. Like, what are the main areas of your life? Not necessarily in descending order, but like... I suppose to me, um, oops, sorry, this, um, if you're not in a good place, then how are you able to do almost anything else? So to me, to be selfless first, you must be selfish. Am I in a secure relationship with myself? I don't think I've ever been in a disastrously insecure with myself, but definitely being by myself at 18 caused loneliness, FOMO, etc. Yeah. I honestly believe I'm in the best relationship with myself that I've ever been. Uh, and slowly each year it improves. Um, and so like I go on dates with myself or like writing, is, is, is like a conversation with myself, right? Uh, so I think that that one I would say is secure. Now, everyone has good and bad days. So that doesn't mean that all minutes of every day that I'm in that, you know, sometimes you're like your own worst enemy, but I'm like 90% or something secure with myself, I reckon now. Mm. And I was probably 50% secure a percent of the time with myself when I was 18. And you then you try to drown out those periods of insecurity with like TV or catching up with random people that you don't necessarily want to catch up with yeah. because it's better than just being by yourself. Yeah, so maybe how would you describe 
yourself, like, you know, James, like, you know, is that like percentage of the time that you're secure? It's probably the best way of looking yeah, at it. Yeah, so I, and I think positive center override, the concept of positive, I'll let go of this and then you can say, um, so positive center override, Danny Kahneman, if you are at work and more than 75% of the time you're enjoying it, then you don't care about that 25% of the time you're not. Mm. So you work for three hours, four hours, if three hours are good and one hour is bad, you have positive center override for the one hour that's bad, right? Yeah. So maybe the line of self-security is, well, I'm 9% of the time positive. And so the 10% of the time that I'm not, I'm like, it'll pass. It doesn't bother me. You just like kind of watch it. You watch the whatever's going on, anxiety, insecurity, worry, you know, et cetera. But you don't let it become you. It doesn't destabilize yeah. you. And so I think over time I've gone from 50 to 90, but then there's a weeks where I'm like 10%, but you know that week will pass. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to go back to this, um, element of self-esteem and trust because for me when I can't when it comes to my relationship with myself I actually think like maybe the first half of my life it was a journey in self-esteem and coming around to you know believing in myself and liking myself and making that matter more than external validation and so I actually think the latter part has been a journey in trusting myself and so mm. what I mean by that is, can I trust myself when I make a commitment to say, all right, tomorrow I'm going to get up and go for a run. And then 6am the alarm goes off, what happens? All right. Can I trust myself to stay focused and do the work that I set out to do in a given work day? Because that doesn't always happen. Um, can I trust myself to continue to show up in my relationships, you know, whether it's with my, my wife or my children or my friends, right? Um, I think trust is fundamental in how I continue to view myself uh, and the relationship that I have with myself. So I'll just pause there and see if that's bringing anything up for you, Duncan. Yeah, it, it's, I don't know if I'd call it trust. <laughs> like, I suppose in some respects, this is kind of like, your sort of most recent like success win loss rate is self self esteem is your win loss rate right which in some respects is security or whatever and so i suppose how much of the time when i'm by myself as an example am i enjoying it or not enjoying it and the portion of the time like if you're lonely when you're by yourself you're in poor company it's gone up and i suppose the next one and this is trust we've got this like is like for me is your core relationships mm. Um, they say you can know 10 people really well, but you can't know, I don't know, 30, right? Um, and, or five to 10. I don't have over-reliance upon any one person. Some people, they don't really see many people. Like, it's just their partner and them. Yeah. That's the vast part. And that's fine. It's not, you know, each their own. But like, but if that person went away, it's like, uh-oh, giant hole. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and also, sometimes they're wanting things. So to me, like, I don't know, like, the most time I spend with somebody else outside of work a week is probably like six, seven hours. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not, I live by myself, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there's almost always somebody to catch up with if I want to, that I want to catch up with, that I, is one, in, the, in that top 10, right? Um, and so it, the next level is like, I have a secure set of close people. Every one of them is secure, right? Mm. But also I'm not asking more from them than I think they want to give to me. And I hope vice versa. Now you all have those weeks where you need a bit more help and support. So, but on average, it's not like I want to see them three times as much as they want to see me or something. Yep. And, and it's a cure, but not balanced or whatever. So I don't know if trust talks into that, but to me, the first one is I'm going to better rest with myself. And then I think I'm in the best, with the 10 people in my life, I'm in the best place that I've ever been with them. I think maybe a, a, another way to look at it um, is to overlay a previous model you and I have talked about, and that is competence and confidence. So I would think of self-esteem mm. as confidence and trust being competence because self-esteem is, I would say, more of a, a belief set, whereas trust is something that is earned. And that's the same for competence. Uh, and I believe that's the same for confidence. So I, I think that there have been numerous times where I've had full confidence in myself but I have had people come and tell me, you know, what you say has not met up with or has not aligned with 
um, what you do or your actions. Your words don't match your actions. And so I, mm-hmm. I think that's where this element of, at least when I talk about trust, I might maybe it's about reliability or it's about are you getting the results uh, when you set yourself a goal? So if you are constantly setting yourself goals, like, you know, I'm going to run once a week or I'm, I'm just going to take active steps towards taking better care of my health or I'm going to take active steps towards, um, you know, developing in certain areas and you repeatedly, you know, fail to take any actions on that, then how can you have trust or how can you consider that to be um, competent? And so mm. I think if you expand that out to the next, you know, the next layer, which is whether it's at work in your colleagues or your directs or other stakeholders or in friendships when you're thinking about, well, one of the reasons why I think you and I trusted each other is because we constantly, our words met up with our actions in whenever they were called upon. Didn't have to be every single day. That would be, I think, low self-esteem or clingy based on this, um, this table. But it was when you were called upon, more often than not, positive sentiment override, the, the action met with the expectation. Okay, we're talking about from the other side. So, so this is a good subcomponent, I think, of what trust is. Is this reliability? Mm. <laughs> so to me, like, part of it is like, well, are you good when you catch up or are you bad? You know, just this, this is two categories. And are you there when you say you'll be there? Yep. Or are you there a reasonable amount? You know, I don't think anyone should be on call 24-7 or something. Yeah, yeah. And so to me... Um, that's really important. Yeah. And so to me, I know you said in reliability yourself, like, do I do the things that like, this is, I think, one of the things <laughs> that maybe differentiates me. Like, I don't know, I exercise the exact amount I want to. Like I have, like through the two years of COVID and knee operation and other stuff, I have not missed a single day of exercise. Like, that, you know, I, I had COVID too. You had to stay inside, you know, exercise. Whereas other people don't do a single week where they want to do the exercise they want to do. And so to me, I don't recall not doing what I want to do like almost ever. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, it, it took me a while to build the discipline yeah. and, and stuff well, for this. It, but it's just like, do what you say and say what you do and be clear, uh, be dependable. Um, without that, I don't care how good you are if, you're, if I don't know if you're gonna be there. You know, it's, 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 it's irrelevant. Yeah. So to me, dependability is more important than what, how you are. Like just if you're there, but you're not in a great place or you're not very good help, much better than if you're not there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, so it's interesting. I think some people are flaky, if you want to call that, or just, just all over the shop. They're just a mess. Mm. To, to me, um, no one's saying it's easy or whatever, but I think one can and one should be mm. predictable, reliable, dependable for those around them. That doesn't mean you don't have any spontaneity. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, but that the core is this. Not, the core is not a broken foundation that's a rubble. You know, it's an earthquake. And, and there's all this, like, you know, after the, you know, the, vo- the volcanoes exploded in, in um, Tonga or wherever it was, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's a really important point. Yeah. Reliability, bulletproof important. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, to have integrity, I think, is, is, is fundamental to this aspect of someone who is really steadfast in whatever their core set of principles are. And when challenged, they, they don't fold on those so for you Duncan it might not be that when you you know the the rider might have full control of the elephant and that's great so it might not be when you set yourself a goal whether or not you go through with it in your case may well always be the case but it might be in other situations where you think to yourself okay x just transpired given the opportunity to go back and do it again I might have done it a little bit differently so one example could be one's ability to manage their temperament or their emotions, right? So I've spoken in the past about how I personally believe that there is emotional intelligence and then there is emotional fitness. So what I mean by that is, and, and like in the, in the standard textbooks, I think they're, they're one and the same, but what I make the distinction is, I think I have enough awareness on what good emotional regulation is but 
in the moment when I am truly tested, I don't always show up in a way that I would think is um, representative of sound emotional intelligence, if that makes sense. So that's another form of trust or um, reliability that I think can add to this sense of secure attachment. So let me uh, step out of the attachment with oneself to a relationship. If I'm in a relationship with, say, my my wife, which I am, hooray, and (laughs) we talk at length about, you know, what a secure relationship looks like, and that is how you regulate your emotions when you are triggered. So we both know what good looks like, but then when, you know, push comes to shove, if that isn't what is exemplified in those situations, then the trust is broken, whether you know what's Mm. good or not. And so I think that comes Mm. back to this idea of having sound and secure attachment really does come down to not just the consistency and the confidence that you have that this other person has your best interests at heart, but also seeing how they show up in the moment. Do they follow through with what they say? Can they regulate their own emotions enough so that things don't go pear-shaped or toxic or um, you know, destructive, so to speak? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Like, um, I suppose it's so interesting because I think that I'm wildly better at this than I used to be. <laughs> like, um, I don't know, teenager Duncan used to get irate with his brother and my mother, frankly. Uh, Everyone. And don't the match. And the, the portion of the time that that occurs, it still happens from time to time, is wildly down. Like 1% of what it used to be, right? To the point where I don't even think about it anymore. This is just because like, like some people are like, you know, what are you going to get? So maybe so there's two parts, dependability and then uh, how positive or negative are you? Some people that are like, you know, whatever, bipolar. And they're sometimes positive, sometimes negative. You, what, are, what are you getting? Don't know. And, and for me, I suppose it was more just finding, it's, it's really interesting. Like I, I didn't think about this because I've consciously tried to upgrade my relationships, but I haven't tried to consciously think about the attachment style for them. Hmm. That part, maybe it was implicit, but I would, I would argue they're all secure. And I would say that, like James, as an example, you and I, people used to say, are they conversing or are they yelling at each other, right? <laughs> and I think it was partially um, fun in jest, but also partially like a bit boiling over or whatever. Do you know what I mean? But there wasn't bad blood, do you know? And you'd always, you know, you'd always be like, oh, I can't wait to see James again. But I, it, with the benefit of hindsight, I now enjoy our interactions more than I did. So on average, each interaction we have is on average more positive, right? You know, the, so the percentage, you know, and the dependability is, I think for us always been there. I've never worried about that with you. I suppose, you know, you do with some people or whatever else it is, but I would like to believe I'm dependable. <laughs> um, and I would like to believe that my self-awareness and other stuff is going up. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Like I'm not aware of being, so can you, make the foundation upon which someone can have a trusting relationship with you. It takes two to tango, right? Yeah. Like, how are you to them? To have a friend first, you must be a friend. And then are you also building this? And so to me, you're talking about from an adult perspective, which is cool. It's not just like, are you attentive? Like, that's what it's a kid. And are you consistent? You know, that's what I'm saying. Well, here it's like, are your experiences positive and are you dependable? Which is, you know, dependable is like, you're just there when you, you should be. And, and so to me, yeah, like, I honestly don't know. Actually, that's not true. Now I've just thought about it. <laughs> um, I, I honestly cannot recall yelling at somebody in, in at least 10 years. Mm. Right? Um, and I can't really recall losing my cool. Do I get elevated from time to time? Yes. And other things, sure. But like, like functional. I'd like to think I'm functional. Mm. And there was de- definitely times of dysfunction when you were younger. Um, but over time... I've become less dysfunctional, which is also the code for a bit more function. Mm. And the percentage of dysfunction in my relationships, not just insecure, but dysfunction. So there's secure, insecure, and dysfunction. There's three categories. Mm. Mm. So I I reckon with myself, there's like 0.1% dysfunction, 10% insecure, and 90% secure now. And that wasn't the case when I was 18. It's like 5% dysfunction, 45% insecure, and 50% secure Mm. or something. Mm. So I think... Going back to the idea of, or you know, the topic of self-authoring slash, you have a choice. 
or you can choose how you want to establish your relationships. And just listening to your own personal journey, I think a lot is to be said about self-awareness and also awareness of the other ways in which relationships can be based. So let me give you an example. For yourself, up until relatively recently, um, it would be fair in my mind to say you were unaware of how terse you could be in certain interactions. For myself, mm. I can say with confidence that I was grossly unaware with how absolute I sounded based on my word choices in interactions. And even though I think you and I could both posit that during that time we were doing other areas of self-exploration we had already been reading up on things like Keegan's theory of adult development we had at all times believed that we could self-author ourselves but because we were not self-aware that we were coming across as terse or absolute there's nothing we could do to change that it's only once the awareness is there that there's something part of you that you would ideally want to change or could change does it become um you know part of your lexicon of things that you control um, you know, another really good example is like, you know, first you learn to read and then you read to learn. The more words you know, helps to better shape your understanding of reality. Mm. And so what I would posit is, let's maybe use an extreme example here. There are people who grew up in very hostile environments and maybe mm. for a very long time, they only understand one, maybe two forms of engaging or interacting with other people. Maybe it is the full blown, um, you know, anxious avoidant. And that it's just that there is just no continuity or stability in everything, and you know, <laughs> it might be a little bit mentally yeah. unstable, or maybe it's just always insecure avoidant. Like, if you show any emotion, you will be rejected by your loved ones and peers. And so, I think there is something to be said about even those people who know they're insecure avoidant, knowing what secure looks like is a huge step in that direction because I feel like Duncan. Mm you know, people that you and I both know in in practice don't know what that looks like. Does do not know what that looks like. They might know in they might know in theory. They might read the books like you and I can read the books. But, you know, mm. try to describe the colour orange to someone who's never seen the colour orange. I feel is mm. similar in that way. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um it's really interesting. Um if you've never had secure environment mm. and some of these people like their, their parents are abusive or whatever and then they're born into a poverty trap like yes. people at the bottom of the income spectrum in America and then at school there's like violence and other stuff so there is no safe space aka a place where they are secure yeah. there's just constant there was this will that make it harder of course right um, but I, I don't know I think also some people manufacture stuff in their head like they're catastrophizing the whole time and people like so identity foreclosure is to me what personality is i've decided i'm this mm. oh i can't change mm. it you know oh i remember you started off with oh yeah it's very difficult and i'm like oh, oh that the average person doesn't change much is not saying that it's very difficult it's just saying that they necessarily haven't tried yeah. right yep and they're not even aware of these attachment styles so all else equal the words are tools tools you have to help you change your understanding of reality uh, words are wisdom from past generations. They are inheritance. Um, and becoming aware of these styles is, is so interesting. And so I would say that as an example, uh, you're always going to have ego distortions and blind spots. So you, and hopefully if you're not finding them, then you've definitely got them. You know, <laughs> so if you're not finding a few a year, then you've got a, a hell of a lot of them. You know, so minimum, if you're finding a few a year means hopefully you've only got a small number, <laughs> you know, because you grow. Anyways, um, do I always necessarily try to foster a secure relationship with people? The answer is, I, I think actually no. <laughs> because sometimes there are people, as an example at work, like the Peter Principle, promoted to the incompetence, or, or just not working out. To me, if someone's work quality is below sufficiency, letting them know about that isn't bad. Letting them not know about it is bad. This will take a hit because they're, they're in a relationship with work, right? also in a relationship with the people there. And so you can be supportive, but we're also, like, I don't know, at school, no child left behind. 
But at work, we're a team, not a family. Family, nobody ever gets kicked out unconditional love. Team, we want the best team to improve education. And if you're not cutting it, sorry. You know, and that's not, in my opinion, something that is bad. It's good. Mm. We have very high standards and we hold ourselves and others to them. And hopefully if you're, you know, able to make the cut, cool. But if you're not able to make the cut, you're cut, you know? Um, and so it's interesting, like, should you be trying to foster secure relationships with everyone? And I suppose I'm trying to get to the point where, well, not in all circumstances. So let's, I think, make sure we're clear, we're clear on what the functional components of a secure attachment is. Because my personal belief is that you should. And I think using this workplace culture of your sports team, not a family, is a really good one. Uh, because I agree, right? I agree that, um, you know, if you're a sports team, you don't just keep someone on the team because, uh, you know, you want what's best for them. Is you no, know, you're a team, you have a, a unified goal and you want to make sure that you have the best possible person in that seat to achieve that goal. But when when you look at what they initially describe the different types of attachment styles as having, it's whether um, the ability to deal with emotional distress is organized and whether it is secure or insecure. So if you've got Organized, insecure, you've got avoidant or resistant. If you've got organized, secure, you've got secure. If you've got unorganized, insecure, you've got atypical, disorganized attachment. So what I'm saying is, when they talk about someone in the workplace, you can have a sports team analogy, but still a very secure environment with you know, five dysfunctions of a team. You've got trust, accountability, um, you've got, um, you know, clear goals, all of those things that somebody knows exactly what's expected of them and that they have the trust and support of those around them as long as they show up and they, um, you know, keep their end of the bargain, so to speak. I think that's a secure attachment. You can go into other workplaces that might be more family oriented in that, you know, we stick with each other no matter what, but it could be laden with, you know, political um, uh, insidious behavior. It can have a very... Families aren't always positive. Stuff. Exactly. They might always be there, but they, they, they're yelling and screaming, there's dysfunction all over the place, you know, yeah. being rude, etc. But I think, Duncan, because you would be very clear in your expectations of people in your organization from day one and how they are meeting up to that expectation as they go, that to me creates a more secure attachment than someone who just joins an organization, doesn't know where their position is, doesn't know what their role or responsibility is, doesn't know whether they're meeting up to that expectation or not, would be a lot more insecure, I think. And so, do I think you should try to create secure attachments in all relationships? Yes. But I don't think that means that you should just then make the other person feel safe and, and you know, um, cuddled no matter what. It should just mean that they understand how certain uh you know events within that relationship will transpire what happens when you do x well you're not show you're not showing up out you go you show up you get support what i was going to get to there is that if somebody is not doing a good job you should let them know mm. yeah <laughs> right and this will probably mean they don't have a secure relationship with work right and so to me but if somebody is doing a good job you should let them know <laughs> and they should be possible to create a secure relationship. Can I give you one so more example? Just because they could have a possible secure relationship doesn't mean they will. You are part of helping create the ecosystem for that. But I've also seen people that are dependent mm. and you just got to pump up their tires every day. They're just, you know, air slowly coming out. And if you don't, they're, you know, constant self-doubting. I call them Debbie doubters. <laughs> um, just does themselves in. Yeah. And so to me, when you start, yeah, of course you shouldn't be like super confident about your abilities because you're just getting started. But I don't know, I'm just picking it up. After six months, hopefully you're, you're getting into your groove, yeah. right? But if someone isn't in their groove in six months, so to me, you shouldn't. So if they should be secure, you should help them be secure, but you should not ensure they're secure by constantly pumping up their tires, helicopter parenting them, right? Yeah. Um, but if they are not doing a good job, you should also let them know. And that is with the good intentions of helping them try to be able to do a good job and actually move to a secure place. Um, but if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And so it's interesting. 
like well I would- insecurity i suppose is actually a feature at certain points mm. because it's a signal for change that is required exactly and i would say but what- inse- unnecessary insecurity is also bad yeah what i would say is what you've described could equally be used to outline any relationship you know romantic relationship friendship what have you because in a romantic partnership you it's not unconditional love it is you know depends on it but often <laughs> but it in, in you know in in every in all fairness if i'm not showing up in my relationship my partner will let me know and that is i find so constructive because in order for us to have a long standing um, productive and um, enjoyable relationship I think it's incumbent upon us to share with each other when the other person isn't meeting up in certain areas now you can have deliberations over whether you agree with that that I think is separate but if you don't know just like how you and I give each other feedback all the time we're bringing to the forefront a potential blind spot and we're doing that with the other person's best interest at heart right so it goes back to that idea of trust and so I think that if you have the trust of the people within your organization that they know that whatever it is that you communicate with them that you do it with the intention of it being in everyone's best interest then i think that's going to foster a secure relationship mm. all right summary time. summary time uh this is just a lens all models are wrong some are useful the attachment styles i think was at least what i found out about originated from child attachment style or childhood but then I was like, actually uncleave it. And you can apply it in almost any area with yourself, with a job, with a romantic partner, with friends, whatever. Um, and when you can look at the world from this lens, I think you can see, well, actually there are times when I've not had a secure relationship with certain people. There are times when it's, you know, of myself, actually, I'm not either in a secure relationship or not. Like I, I am a certain percentage of the time, right? And is over time that improving? And so when you get this new lens or model through which to view the world, it helps you give context and color to certain things. It's totally okay for someone who's new at work to need a bit of a self-validation, a pat on the back to let them know and to be able to hopefully get to have a fair reflection of how you see them. But it's not okay to need to constantly pump someone's tires up, you know? (laughs) Um, And so to me, it's a really useful model um, to talk about things and to understand where people are at. And I think once people see this model, they can begin to self-diagnose better and they can then start to say, oh my God, I'm, you know, far too often in the anxious bucket and this is unnecessary it's, it's all made up it's all in my head and so to me it's a very useful thing um to have um and i think that you should be trying to build secure relationships with yourself and others but secure relationships you know probably don't need maintenance most of the time like maybe 10 or 20 percent of the time you've got to make it work if it's secure it requires maintenance 100 of the time it's probably not secure <laughs> it's a falsehood so anyways i like this model james <laughs> all right so um, you know, we started off talking about specifically attachment theory and how it has its roots in child development. Whether you are from a sensitive and loving relationship with your caregiver, that's secure. Whether it's insensitive and rejecting, that's insecure avoidant. Insensitive and inconsistent, that's insecure resistant. Uh, or just chaotic and atypical where it's insecure and disorganized. But I actually really like where this conversation went, which is, as you said, beyond the... Um, the singular notion of a, a child and caregiver relationship to any relationship, including the one you have with yourself. Um, and I really enjoyed the, the two dimensions of self-esteem and trust as a way or a model to help provide context into what is the nature of the relationship you're having right now. And so for me, a lot of it is to do with myself and you know, a lifelong journey of having enough self-esteem to have the confidence that I feel secure in myself, in whatever it is that I pursue or the relationship that I have. But I also think that there is an ongoing development in the trust that one can have with oneself uh, and you know whether that's reliability, integrity or competence or otherwise. Um, and I do think it's a constant thing that you, you work on um, because we're always, I, I believe, growing ourselves. We're always looking ways to develop. Duncan, you and I continue to do this with this podcast and the feedback that we give each other outside of it. And it's all steeped in the, the belief, or at least 
in my view, the knowledge that we always have the other person's best interest at heart. So I really like the idea of how attachment theory or the idea of secure attachment can provide a solid lens of what, how am I creating this in all of my relationships? Because I personally believe that you should foster secure attachment with all relationships. But that doesn't mean that it is a, 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 you know, a conventional family arrangement where you're accepted and loved no matter what. I still believe that it can be more of this you know, conditioned partnership where as long as those in the, in the relationship, whether it's boss and direct, whether it's two people in a romantic setting, are always upfront and clear and honest with each other in a way that is considerate, you know, radical candor maybe, but in a way that at least let the other person know that they have the best interest at heart, you will be, you know, on a good track to creating secure attachment. Yay. Yay. All right. Thanks, dude. Cheers, Douglas. Speedy soon. Yay.